First Chronicles chapter 21 says this, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commander of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord, the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require of this? Require this. Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? For the king's word prevailed against Joab's. So Joab's depart, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemy overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, but as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the, from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me, against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the sight of the threshing floor that I may build an altar to the Lord God. Give it to me as it, at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for, for the full price. I will not take for the lord what is yours, not, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David put, paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him from, with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time at the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord.
Well, uh, 1988, there's a guy by the name of John Allen Palos, and he wrote a book called Enumeracy, Mathematical Liter Illiteracy and Its Consequences. And in that book, he argued that there is something that's kind of akin to illiteracy um, where otherwise very smart, bright people, when it comes to numbers, are not so smart, not so bright. And there's a number of different examples of enumeracy in our culture. For example, um, there's the story of the A&W hamburger. Uh, back years ago, it was the 1980s, and the owner of A&W hamburger launched a campaign called Third is the Word, um, and they were promoting their new um, a third pound hamburger. And they were competing against another company that was offering a quarter pound hamburger. And so they were offering at the exact same price. And so they put an incredible amount of money into marketing this new third pound hamburger and how uh, it was such a great value that they were getting more than this other, you know, for, than the, you'd get from this other company that was offering a, a quarter pound burger. And yet they weren't selling. And they were completely baffled by this, why they were putting so much effort into this, and it was really a better value, but people weren't buying it. And so they decided they were going to do a focus group. And uh, they started to kind of research why people weren't buying this hamburger. And what they found startled them. They found that many people thought that a quarter pound hamburger was bigger than a third pound hamburger. And so they thought they were getting ripped off by going to A&W Burger because they were getting a smaller burger at the same price. People don't always understand numbers. Um, another example of a numeracy, uh, there's an ad that we have on, should have on screen here. Um, it says ad. <laughs> okay, it's an ad. There it is. So we see the ad. You can see it there. Um, in the ad, there was uh, kind of figures for um, getting down your uh, tax liability. And so it said that you could have 80% savings. And so it said you could go down from $977,000, that's a, that's a big bill, and you could bring it down to $1,000. And that was 80%. It's not 80%, it's about 99%. But for whatever reason, they put that that was 80%. Um, Paulos notes one time he was watching the news and there was a meteorologist and he was predicting that there was a 50% chance of rain on Friday, a 50% chance of rain on Saturday, and so then he concluded that there was a 100% chance that it was going to rain by putting the 50s together. Uh, I remember when I was... Uh, I was young, a kid, I went to a garage sale, and I did something I'm not proud of. It wasn't very honest. I wouldn't do it again. But I did it. Um, I went to this garage sale, and they, they were selling these, this set of, uh, you know, remember they used to have the, the state quarters, and you could collect the different quarters. And so they had a set of them, and I don't think it was a full 50. It was uh, maybe like 40, 45, something like that. So I went and I calculated how many quarters were there, and how much it was worth, and it came to like $11. And then I went up and I said, hey, would you take $8 for this? And to my surprise, they said, sure, we'll take that. So I gave them $8, and they gave me $11. I felt like I really pulled one over on them. They may have known it, though. Who knows? They may have just been being nice. Uh, one final example. Uh, how long do you think it takes for a million seconds to pass by? If you think about a million seconds, I was asking my wife this, and she said, well, a million seconds. I'm like, yeah, that's right. 
But a million seconds, it takes about 11 days for a million seconds. So then you think about that, so like how long would it take a billion seconds to pass by, or a trillion seconds to, to pass by? You know, maybe you'd guess, like, I would guess maybe 30 days, 40 days, something like that. Uh, it would actually take over 31 years for a billion seconds to pass by, and for a trillion seconds to pass by, it would take over 31,000 years. You know, we think about these numbers and we're like a million, a billion, trillion, they're, you know, they're similar, but they're so far apart. And oftentimes we just don't understand numbers. And uh, I think the problem we see in this passage that we looked at today is, is kind of a problem of innumeracy. It's a problem of not understanding numbers. Uh, in this passage, it says that David conducted a census of his fighting men, and it says in, in specifically that he counted the men who drew the sword. And uh, this census was displeasing to God, it was displeasing to Joab, and we need to think about why was this displeasing to God, why was this displeasing to Joab? And you see in the scriptures, there's a number of times where there's a number of censuses where they're kind of viewed as being neutral, or there's even a number of times where God actually commanded the Israelites or an Israelite king to conduct a census. So what is it about this particular census that is... Um, sinful or something that brings uh, dishonor to God and brings um, dishonor to Joab? What is it about this particular census? And I think the problem is really it's a heart issue and a number issue. He doesn't understand numbers. It's a, num a numeracy problem. And he does something that's very uncharacteristic of him. You know, remember the story of David. He's a man after God's own heart. He's someone who had incredible faith. We first meet him um, in the story of David and Goliath. He just kind of comes on the scene. And remember this, this great, Goliath, uh, great giant Goliath is coming forward and he's saying, who of the Israelites will fight against me? If anybody can take me down, these Philistines are going to be your slaves and you're going to win the victory. And all the Israelites are terrified because Goliath is just a ginormous human being. He's trained in war from the time he's been a child, and he's just a warrior, a man's man. And yet David comes forward and he says, I'll take him. I'll fight against him. And everybody's looking at him like, that doesn't make sense. You're a shepherd boy. You're not trained in warfare. The math doesn't add up. And he says, I'm trusting in God. I believe that God can help me bring down this giant. And he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Later, when persecuted by Saul, he writes this in Psalm 13. It says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Then you fast forward to the passage that we're looking at today, and we see that God has continued to bless David. And look at the passage right before the one that we just read. Uh, chapter 20, verses 4 to 8. Look at what it says. And after this, there arose war with the Philistines at Gezar. Then Sibachai the Hushathite struck down Sippai, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And the Philistines were subdued. And there was again war with the Philistines. And Elkanah, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. 
These were descendants from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servant. So there's no longer one Goliath, there's a family of Goliaths. And we see that God shows his incredible favor on David in that he's not even the one who has to bring down these giants. He's raised up other people to fight and bring down these giants. And so God has been so gracious to him. God has given him such victory over these uh, Philistines. And how might we expect him to respond, given what we know about him and how he, uh, held, how he handled Goliath and how he trusted in God? We'd expect him to kind of joyfully rejoice and praise God for his salvation and bringing him the victory over these several giants, Goliath's family. And yet he doesn't do that. What we find him doing is we find him counting. We find him counting up his troops, saying, let's see how we measure up. Let's see how we compare to these other armies. Let's see where I'm at physically, how strong we are as a nation. It's really quite astounding when he had trusted God so many times. Now he's looking at life from a worldly perspective. It used to be God plus no one is greater than everyone. He's like, I know I'm a shepherd boy. I know I'm not trained in warfare, but I can bring down this giant with the power of God. And now, after God has blessed him all of these different ways, he's thinking to himself, let's see how I measure up. Let's see who we can take on. Let's see how strong we are. Let's see how we measure up. And the result is, David is judged. It's an innumeracy problem. He believes that God is not as strong as the numbers of his troops. And David is judged for his, his sin. He's given three possible punishments. And the, in the end, 70,000 people fall at the hand of the angel of the Lord. In essence, one sword takes down 70,000 people, thousands of armies. So David makes a huge mistake here. He forgets the strength of the power of God, and he starts to focus on numbers. And he thinks the number of his troops is what is most important. And as we look at his mistake, I think we can learn a number of lessons that we can take with us and, and learn from. The first lesson we learn is when we're focused on our own strength and calculating our own strength, we're not really relying on God's strength. Sadly, sometimes the more that God blesses us, the more he blesses us financially, the more opportunities that we give him, sadly, sometimes the less we trust him. And it's really weird how that works, but you think about David, and we think about you know, when he's facing Goliath, he has no one else to trust him. I mean, the odds were stacked against him. It's a million to one that he's going to win. And he can only trust in God. But now he's become this great king, and he's not only defeating giants, but he's leading an army of giant killers. And now he feels like, I got this all together. I, I, I'm this mighty king. I have these forces underneath me. And he starts to trust in his own strength rather than in God's strength. And it's easy to do. And Jesus said it's especially easy for, to do for those who have a lot of wealth. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the reason is rich people don't need to trust God. They have their own security. You know, and you think about wealth kind of from the world's standpoint and from the standpoint of history, and I think just about all of us would be considered wealthy from that standpoint. And there's always this temptation to trust in our stuff and our own resources 
rather than to trust in God and his provision. And I think the pertinent question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we counting or are we trusting? Are we counting up our own resources and trying to figure out what we have or are we trusting in God and God's provision? So I'm thinking about going, uh, we're thinking about going on vacation to Florida in January. And uh, I'm starting to kind of plan it out. And, and some of the things I'm thinking about is like, where are we going to go? How much is it going to cost? How much are we going to need? Um, just kind of trying to plan activities and think about like, what things can we afford? What things do we need to forego? And kind of counting the cost of those things. And uh, I think about those things and, you know, for me, it's, it's fun, but it's also kind of, you know, work to kind of figure those things out. But think about it from the standpoint of my son. If I asked him, do you want to go to Florida? He'd be like, yes, let's go. Let's go to Disney World. Let's go to the beach. Let's do everything. And if I asked him, so where's the money going to come from? Like, how, how are we going to pay for these things? He'd say, well, mom and dad, they're, they'll take care of it. And of course, he doesn't think about counting the cost. He trusts his mom and dad that they're going to take care of it. And I think that should be our mindset as believers. We're not just kind of always figuring out what we have. We're trusting that our Heavenly Father is going to provide for us. And of course, the easiest application is with, with money. Um, and, you know, the question is, are we focused primarily on the size of our bank account or are we trust, uh, trusting in God and His provision? Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be smart with our money. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't budget and, and, and those kind of things. I think those things are honoring to God. But where is our focus? Is our security our stuff? Is our security our resources? Is our, or is our security our Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us? You know, we're living in times that are starting to get more difficult. I went to the gas station yesterday. I was filling up some uh, gas cans for my lawnmower, filled up my gas tank, and it was $93. Uh, like it's $93 for some gas. You know, you go to the grocery store, it's like you get two things and it's like $100 now. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And we think about this and, you know, times are getting more difficult. And in these times, you know, we can kind of just, you know, be negative about it, but we have to realize, you know, kind of figure out who we're going to trust in. Are we going to always be kind of worrying about that and kind of focusing on the negative and how much we're spending, how much things cost? Or are we going to trust the fact that our Father owns all of it? That He owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Applications, I think, go further than this. For the task that God's entrusting, with us right, entrusting to us right now, maybe He's entrusting you to be a parent or an employee, a caregiver to an elderly, elderly loved one. With a task that he's given you. Are you counting or are you trusting? Are you figuring out your own resources and trying to do it in your own strength? Or are you trusting in him to provide for you every step of the way? Second application I, th I see in this passage. We can't limit what God can do tomorrow by what he has done today. We can't limit what God can do tomorrow by what he's done today. See, in David's act of numbering the army, he's in essence limiting God. He's in essence putting a number on, the, uh, on his forces and the number of people that God can use for his purposes. And look at what Joab says in verse 3. He says, may the Lord add to his people hundreds times, a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not the Lord my king, the Lord's servants? Notice also the promise that was given to uh, Abraham. 
the, the kind of the beginning of the, the Israelite nation in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, the promise is given him. Uh, God brings him outside and says this to him. Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God tells Abraham, count the stars and that's how great your offspring is going to be. But what if Abraham decided he was going to take stock of what he had at that particular time? What does he have? In terms of offspring, he has no one. He doesn't have any children. And so if he's just focused on what he has now, he's limiting God. And I think that's what, uh, what David is doing in this passage. He's limiting God. He's saying, this is what I have to work with. And Joab says, no, it's not. Your father, your God, owns all of it. And so you're trying to put a number on the work of God saying, this is the number of people that you have. God can do incredibly more than you could ever imagine. And so he's trying to limit God by what he has now. And that's not the end of the story. You think it back on the story of Abraham and God telling Abraham to count the stars. Imagine you go outside tonight and uh, try to count the stars. Now, if you go outside and try to count the stars, let's say it's a really clear night. There's very little light pollution. You can see all of the stars in the, in the sky. You'd probably come up with, if you counted accurately, somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,500 to 5,000 stars, something like that. Then you could confidently say, well, there's 4,500 stars in the universe. If you said that, you would be very, very wrong. You'd be very wrong for two reasons. Number one, you can only see about, you know, 4,500 in the northern hemisphere. You can see a number of different ones in the southern hemisphere. Probably about 4,500, 5,000 more. So there's at least 4,500 to 5,000 different ones that you could see. In addition, scientists estimate that there's about 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. 200 billion trillion stars. And a lot of scientists estimate that that is actually really low. And so counting what you really, just what you see, it's meaningless. We serve a God who's promised to do immeasurably more than we can hope and imagine. And, and David's counting his armies, and really that number is meaningless because he, served, he serves a God who's promised he's going to be his God, promised he's going to make him a great king, promised he's going to defeat his enemies, and all he's focused on is what God has given him right now. And I think the same thing can happen with us as believers. God has promised us a number of things. He's promised that, he, that we'll be his children. He's promised to give us eternal life. He promised to work all things for our good and for his glory. He's given us all these problems and all these promises, and sometimes we just focus on what we have now. And we measure up, what has God done right now in my life? And we feel like that's the end of the story. And God's like, there's so much more. We can't just focus on what we see. God is doing immeasurably more than we could hope and imagine. Instead, we're to do as Abraham did. Even though he didn't have any children, even though if he counted up what he had now, it would be empty, he believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, even when he didn't see it. And throughout David's life, most of the time David did that, but in this moment he falls short, and in this moment he just focused on what he has rather than trusting in God.
But when we trust in God, it brings joy to the heart of God. Especially when we trust in God when it's difficult, when we don't see him working. Uh, There was a famous ethicist by the name of John Kavanaugh, and he went to Calcutta, India. He wanted to meet Mother Teresa, and he was just kind of having a crisis, so to speak, where he was just trying to figure out what he was going to do with the rest of his life. And so he went to this place called the House of the Dying and served the poorest of the poor. And he had the opportunity to meet Mother Teresa. Uh, and he asked her, he said, Mother Teresa, would you pray for me? And she said, what, what do you want me to pray for? And he said, well, do you pray that I have clarity? And Mother Teresa said, no, I'm not going to pray for that. And he, and he said, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, you're the a person in my life that I've... I've kind of admired for so long, and it seems like you have such clarity about what God wants you to do, and it seems like you have such a purpose and a focus in life. Why won't you pray that I have that same clarity and focus? She went on and said this, clarity is the last thing you're clinging to and must let go of. She said, I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. We need that kind of faith. We need the kind of faith that believes that there are stars beyond the sky that we can see. That God is working even when we don't see it. Final application I think we can learn from this passage is that even the heroes of the faith are desperate for grace. Again, it's remarkable that the giant slayer becomes a transgressor. The one who would become the king of the giant slayer breaks the covenant. And the issue is profoundly a relational issue when it comes down to it. God had allowed him to defeat Goliath, put him on the throne, defeated his enemies, provided everything for him. And yet after God did all that, he still is looking to his own resources saying, i got to figure this out myself. And as a result, again, there's a punishment that God brings upon uh, him and upon the people. He's given three different choices for that punishment. I'm not sure exactly why he gives them the choices, but he does. And he chooses for the sword of the Lord to come among the people for three days. And his reasoning is, I'd rather have the Lord punish me than to fall in the hands of an an enemy force. So that's what he chooses. And we see see that David sees this scene of a sword between heaven and earth. The angel of the Lord is hovering between heaven and earth, a sword outstretched over the city of Jerusalem. And there's a significance to that. The image is very similar to another image that we see in the story of Abraham. Remember in the story of Abraham, God called Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And, you know, it was a test. Of course, he didn't go through with that, but he was testing Abraham. And so Abraham brings Isaac up Mount Moriah, and they get to the top. They prepare the sacrifice, and uh, Abraham says the Lord's going to provide the sacrifice. And yet Isaac is on the altar, and we see that Abraham's arm is stretched out, a sword is stretched out, and he's about to strike his son. In that context, essentially what God says is right before he's about to sacrifice his son, God says, stop, stop, I provided a sacrifice. And then he sees a ram in the thicket. Here, now in the story of of David, we see a similar image, the sword of the Lord, of the angel of the Lord, is stretched out on Jerusalem. It's the same location of Mount Moriah, the same location where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. And once again, God says, stop. 
stop. And we see that David built an altar and the, the, uh, the, the wrath of God is avenged. But we also see something also that, that's also interesting. A few hundred years later in a location very close to this, the arm of the Lord, of the angel of the Lord, once again is going to be outstretched. The sword of the Lord is going to come down. This time the Lord isn't going to say stop. This time the, the sword of God's wrath is going to be poured about Jesus. And he's going to take the punishment for all humanity. And so we see in the story that it, we think about it as kind of a harsh story that a lot of people died in the story. But really it's a story of God's grace. We see that, they, they, that the people of Israel transgressed the covenant. God was angry against, uh, against them. You can look at more about that in 1 Samuel chapter 24. God's king had led them astray, and they deserved to be kind of forsaken as a people. They deserved to be cast off. And just at the moment when the angel of the Lord is about to destroy Jerusalem, destroy God's people, destroy God's king, God says, stop. My sacrifice is enough. And they're shown grace eventually because of the sacrifice of King Jesus that would be, it would, he would be sacrificed hundreds of years later. And we look at this story, we think about David, the man after God's heart, one of the most righteous people in all of Scripture, and yet he fell short. He fell short of the glory of God. And I think this story is a reminder that if he fell short, if he failed to trust God, I think that we all will. And yet there's grace. There's hope because of the sacrifice that Christ gave for us on the cross. So again, when we're focused on calculating our own strength, we're not relying on God's strength. When we focus only on what is happening today, we kind of forget what God can do tomorrow. And also the heroes of the faith are desperate for grace. You know, as a pastor, sometimes I feel like a broken record because, I mean, there's a one fundamental call in the Scripture, to trust God. You know, and it's kind of put in a number of different ways. Sometimes it you know, expresses itself in obedience and expresses itself in a different way. But the fundamental call is God says, trust me. I love you. I care for you. I gave everything for you. I want to be your perfect heavenly Father. Will you trust me? And that's what God calls us to. And yet sometimes we focus on our own resources counting up what we have, trying to figure it out on their own rather than trusting in his provision. There was once, years ago, there was a young boy who was traveling to see his grandparents, traveling by himself on an airplane. And uh, he was working on this Sunday school paper, and he happened to be sitting next to a seminary professor. And the seminary professor thought, you know, he'd strike up a conversation, have a little fun with him because he saw what he was doing. And he said, young boy, um, if you can tell me one thing that God can do, I'll give you a nice shiny apple. The boy thought about it for a moment, and then he replied, Mister, if you can tell me something that God can't do, I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. It's a matter of perspective. Are we counting, limiting God, or are we trusting that there's nothing that God cannot do? Are we counting our own resources, trying to do it in our own strength, or are we trusting in him and his provision? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we don't have to do life on our own. We thank you that when we're weak, you're strong.
We thank you that your grace is enough for us, even when we fall short of your glory. Lord, help us to never forget our desperate need for you. Help us to never believe that we can do it on our own. But in everything that we do, may we trust in your provision, especially when we don't see it. Especially when we can only see a picture of what you're doing. Help us to trust and believe that you're working in ways that we cannot see. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.